0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. In
1: 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. Twenty years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Oh, mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy.
0: Not now. Not ever. I mean, (laughs) these comments are completely inappropriate.
1: I'm sure she's right.
0: But I ain't spending any time on it.
1: How pathetic. You're a classic space invader.
0: Disgusting, mud sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves.
1: Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good. (laughs) Democracy Sausage Extra. I'm Mark Kinney from the ANU and of course this podcast is a joint production of ANU and Policy Forum. I'm very glad today to be speaking to an old colleague of mine, Matthew Knott. He's the US correspondent now for the Nine Newspapers, it used to be the Fairfax Papers and Matthew and I used to work to, with each other in the uh, in the Sydney Morning Herald Bureau, Sydney Morning Herald and Age Bureaus uh, in Parliament House in Canberra. Now a few months ago, uh, we also spoke to on this program a uh, another former colleague from then and who is now the UK correspondent Bevan Shields. Now Bevan's been covering the uh, the COVID outbreak. Of course, he covered it in uh, Northern Italy when uh, the the uh, outbreak was ravaging um, that that part of Italy then, and uh, and obviously covered the calamitous handling of the COVID threat as it started to ravage Britain as well. And Bevan then succumbed to the bug himself and he was able to give us a harrowing account of what it was like to have COVID-19 and it was not a pretty description. Um, now, I'm very glad to have Matthew Knott on the program today, as I say, former colleague, but Matthew might be able to even trump, if I can use that term, Bevan Shields' personal experience out on the road because Matthew Knott has, uh, has a harrowing tale of his own. Matthew Knott, welcome to Democracy Sausage Extra.
0: Hi, Mark. How are you? It's great to uh, be having a chinwag with you again.
1: It is good to be talking again. It's extremely cold here in Canberra, so you probably remember that. Having having uh, been in the US winter, you'd know a bit about the cold, but I guess it's a, a fair bit warmer where you are in, in uh, Washington, D.C.?
0: living here in summer you realize why they call it the swamp the humidity is really really intense uh it's, it's not very pleasant and there's no relief from any kind of breeze so yeah I, I worked out where that nickname came from
1: yes yes and but of course it has its uh, its political dimensions as well yes. uh as uh, donald trump has weaponized that whole idea um but look it wasn't your story doesn't come from washington d c this uh, this harrowing tale I refer to it comes from New York uh, a little to the north of Washington um, Tell us if you will uh, what happened to you
0: yeah it's funny you mentioned about bevan because once it was clear I was alive, we did had a joke that that I was uh, just trying to outdo him for sympathy uh on social <laughs> media and with uh with our colleagues. Um, when I had my incident uh yeah uh, a, a bit different it doesn't have the same geopolitical implications as uh, the coronavirus although it is related uh, I went up to New York for a friend's birthday uh in June uh, kind of the first gathering of any type like that I've been a part of uh, in months because of social distancing uh in Central Park uh afterwards uh, we went back to his rooftop in New York of his apartment building um which is quite common to go up to the roof in New York, uh, but particularly so during the pandemic for people to be out in the open air and you know not congregating inside uh, and then I uh was walking over to what I thought was another part of the roof uh, this is on the top of a five story building, and suddenly I was falling <laughs> with nothing under me and Smashed into the ground uh, from that height and
1: a sort of, five story plunge towards the concrete.
0: Yeah, yeah, off the rooftop. So it's 60 feet. I don't know what that is in meters. Uh, yeah, with nothing, with nothing stopping me. Uh, yeah, and so then uh, was being uh, taken to hospital and whatnot. Were you uh,
1: conscious at that point?
0: Yes, I, I never lost consciousness. So I knew that I was alive just in a lot of pain, a bit, un, you know, unclear what was going on. I knew something quite bad had happened. Uh, yeah, and then was taken to uh, a big public hospital in New York and all types of uh, people looking at you doing x-rays. Uh, yeah, and so it turned out the main things I had were a broken elbow and uh, wrist uh, dislocated shoulder the other shoulder was fractured having um, some fractures in the back which sounds like a lot and it was at that time but the general consensus was really that it's a miracle that you're alive and that you uh, you know you haven't damaged your legs you're still going to be able to walk you haven't been concussed you haven't done any damage to your face or neck or anything like that no internal bleeding so it was incredibly lucky and I've looked a bit into the literature and the statistics about it and it's really more than a 50% chance that I would have died from that height. So I feel lucky to be here talking to you.
1: Yeah, well, I feel very lucky to, that you are as well. Um, Bevan actually was the one who rang me from London because, you know, in this uh, in this COVID time, as you say, when um, all kinds of, uh, you know, basic things are more difficult, uh, the people you were with uh, were not sure how to get in touch with your next of kin, and had met Bevan, the the UK correspondent, and had his number, and were able to contact him, and he was able to do some some things in terms of informing your family and one or two others. Um, but uh, just tell us um, what your understanding is of of how it happened, because I, I think up on those roofs they, they often have uh, you know a low wall around uh, around the the rooftop, and. They, they're they sort of tarred so they're kind of matte black or very dark yeah. coloured and you're up there at night and you think you're walking towards the edge but there's in fact an edge in between you and the edge that you're looking at and that's yeah, a, exactly. a little laneway or something.
0: Yeah, what some Americans call it is an air shaft uh, similar to the idea of a skylight but really what it is is just a very narrow gap which is designed just to let in some light and some air into the building, um, some cases in order so that you know you can sell it as a bedroom. It has to have a window. Uh, it's not really, you know, that's the purpose that it's serving is to just let a bit of light and ventilation into uh, into the apartment uh, buildings. That's why it's that's why it's there.
1: And I believe the uh, the the first responders, the, um, the the ambulance people who came to to get you. Uh, made some observation that they don't normally, they're not normally taking away someone who's alive, who's plunged from a building at that height. That's normally a a more maudlin task for them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember them doing various tests, asking what your name is and what the date is and checking whether my legs could move and what could move. And I do remember even in, in the fog of the pain and confusion of what was going on, them saying, you need to buy a lottery ticket because we've been to similar sites like this and it hasn't ended so well. So I knew from pretty early on that that I was lucky.
1: And it was pretty tough for uh, for your friends that you were with at the time because because of COVID they were not able to go into the hospital at all with you and uh, and 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 weren't able because they weren't next of kin weren't able to get information as I understand it about how you were progressing. So. Uh... All around, just a an extraordinary story, you know, which does have its sort of COVID dimension, but as you say, is really uh, just this remarkable story of luck and survival in a circumstance that you wouldn't think you would be able to survive.
0: Yeah, and I should also thank my father who came over from had to get special approval to come over from Australia to kind of help me and you know um, cook and clean and help me get dressed. Uh, He's currently in two weeks of hotel quarantine, not being able to leave now back in Australia. So I did appreciate that.
1: <laughs> yeah, isn't that great? Bevan told me also, I hope I'm not talking too, too much out of school here, but he told me also that um, when he was telling me about this at the time, that uh, your main concern, and I, I have great admiration for this and, and for those of, of our profession, but your main concern was that you were desperate that you weren't repatriated to Australia because you, you know, you were looking forward to covering the U.S. election, and that's uh, to which uh, we will now turn our attention. But that's correct, is it that that was one of your major concerns?
0: Definitely, yeah. No, I, I wouldn't be keen to go back at all. It didn't. The option didn't even cross my mind. I would uh, try and stay here to do it, uh, given how many years we've been waiting for this momentous election. Yeah, I, I wasn't keen to miss it at all.
1: Now, I know this uh, interview so far is sounding pretty in-house and there's even another in-house dimension to it, uh, albeit tangentially, but one of the big issues, uh, big developments in in recent days in the US has been the interview that Jonathan Swan did with the President, uh, President Donald Trump. Jonathan Swan's also a former bureau colleague of ours from the Sydney Morning Herald and Age bureaus uh, in, in Parliament House. A few years back, he's also the son of Norman Swan, as everyone or as many people are starting to now realise. How did you see that interview? I mean, it's, uh, it's 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 pretty extraordinary. How big is it in the US?
0: It generated an enormous reaction here. I saw experienced journalists and commentators on Twitter, you know, describing it as the best interview of Trump they've seen uh, during his presidency which which says a lot. Uh, what some people say is that it says a lot about perhaps how bad some American interviewing is compared to the Australian style. Uh, in general, I think the American style of interviewing is much more deferential and soft than what you would see Lee Sales or David Spears doing traditionally. That's not for everyone. Uh, Chris Wallace on Fox News actually did a really a tough interview with Trump the other day in which he was talking about that cognitive test that he took where you have to identify an elephant. But Jonathan's really cut through in the way that he seemed to give uh, Trump a, a lot of rope to to hang himself with in terms of really pairing with him about these issues about the coronavirus and and death counts and and, and so much. It was the way he followed up and didn't just move on to the next question with Trump. He didn't let Trump just steamroll him with a blizzard of words uh, that that I think caught a, a lot of people's attention here and said, this is a very significant interview.
1: Do you think some of that was just the the, the sort of power of being an outsider, the the, the that little bit of extra objectivity that comes with not being, um, you know, as encultured and not being regarded as encultured in cultured in, uh, in American um, culture, and therefore the president was perhaps more accommodating, or or did he just was he just caught off guard or caught on a bad day because he he really did not perform well in that interview, and yet he didn't. He didn't seem to um he didn't seem to lose his temper either really no
0: no yeah i think I think that does help. I find that there's a lot of goodwill uh, towards Australians. people love the accent they they come with uh, a good preconceptions about Australians and that's a good thing that you can take advantage of as a journalist uh, another thing is just that also Jonathan is regarded as very fair and balanced. The media here is, even more so than back home, is very polarized and people put in boxes of being left or right. And it's not like that with Jonathan. So I don't think that Trump felt he was coming under a partisan attack as he might with some other journalists.
1: Yes yeah, I think that 's absolutely true, and Jonathan has um, made a a real name for himself in terms of his contacts inside the g o p and inside the um, the administration the trump administration uh, he 's trusted as a, a a fair reporter and one who's very conscientious so uh, that that 's a credit to him and I have to say when we had him on the podcast uh, a few months ago uh, talking about American politics. I was just so impressed with uh, the um, the level of his analysis, but also the authority of it, the the um, the fact that it is so well sourced from those many contacts that he has uh, in uh, in uh, on Capitol Hill and and uh, in the um, American political establishment. And I'd encourage any listeners to go back and have a listen to that uh, that podcast because um, uh, Jonathan is really uh, really the goods. Um, Going to the substance of what came out in that interview, um, it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see uh, whether well, – I'm interested in your opinion as to whether uh, Trump now is uh, technically cooked. I mean, is he – able to win this election, do you think? Uh, obviously, it's a two-horse race and you know no one's ever completely out of it, but it does seem to have taken a fairly decisive turn away from him on the back of this uh, COVID crisis and its complete mishandling. What's your view about that? Is that just too blunt a question to be uh, definitively answering at this stage?
0: I, I think so, to be completely definitive. First of all, just people are so scarred after the surprise of the last time that people in general are much more wary about making definitive predictions given how few people thought Trump would win the last time, then there is still a a little bit of time to go. But the thing is that the window is closing uh, for major changes and major developments. The pandemic has made politics much more stable compared to 2016, in which you had things like James Comey, the director of the FBI, releasing this letter about Hillary Clinton that generates all this attention, or Trump, the the revelations about his comments about groping women, these big things. The coronavirus is so all-encompassing that politics as normal is struggling to break through, and Americans have had five or six months now, really, to observe the way the country has handled it and the way Trump has handled it as president. Uh, and many people have made up their minds that uh, that he hasn't handled it very well. It's still not under control uh, on a national level. It's just been moving around the country, and that makes it difficult for him. What can he do to change that narrative? He's used to being able to control the news cycle, but it's hard to it's hard to compete with the coronavirus uh, for attention when it's affecting people's lives so uh, dramatically. And even the voting system, with so many people wanting to vote by mail and, and vote early rather than wait in a line on November 3, uh, some states, it's not long now until people are going to start voting. So that's going to limit the, the opportunities for Trump to change the dynamics here. So Not going to say that he can't win, but it's looking very bad for him at the moment.
1: Let's take a quick break there and be back in a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
0: Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
1: Welcome back. Now, just before the break, Matthew, you were saying that in some states uh, voters aren't that far off uh, being able to cast their votes uh, by mail. This is uh, a political issue in itself. The president is uh, reported today um, in Australia as uh, threatening to sue the state of Nevada, I think it is, in an attempt to frustrate mail-in voting there. Uh, it's all part of uh I guess a cloud of comments that he's made recently that point to him quibbling with the result. First, how, how far off are we from voting uh, or are Americans the first Americans from voting in the election? Is it, uh, is it quite soon?
0: Yeah, it, it's incredibly complicated because it's different in each of the 50 states uh, how people vote, when they can vote, which is part of what makes the system here so so complicated. There's nothing like the Australian Electoral Commission, which is running things in a centralized way. Uh, some states, yeah, some swing states like North Carolina people will be starting to vote uh, from next month. And traditionally that hasn't been normal in America for people to vote early. I know in Australia, you know, it's been taking off more and more each year of people wanting to get it out of the way. Uh, but it's going to be a big change this year. And the question is can the systems handle that, you know, many of these states don't have enough money at the best of times to run their elections very well. We've seen problems in the past. Remember the famous incidents in Florida with the hanging chads and the ballots not working. The question is whether some of these states are going to be up to processing a flood of mail-in ballots where they may not have done it before. So this is the, the tricky part is that you do have real problems potentially, uh, but rather than proposing really helpful ways to address that, uh, Trump is seeking to sow a legitimacy about the results in the expectation that he may not win and wants to have an excuse for why he didn't win.
1: Do you think it's possible in the context of that, is it conceivable at all that he might not run? That if he decides he's facing absolute humiliation, that he could pull out and say that he was the subject of a you know, a conspiracy of the lamestream media, as he calls it, and the, the sort of uh, you know, left-wing radicals and everyone else, that everyone he, it was just impossible for him to get a fair hearing? I, Is that just a uh, pine I, I've style? seen
0: people say that. I think he's running out of time to do that because later this month he's going to officially... Accept
1: be on the, ballot. the nomination.
0: Yeah. Uh, they're, they're talking about where to do that. I think the, the strategy isn't that. The strategy is that if he loses, he will say that it wasn't legitimate and be able to say potentially for the rest of time that he didn't really lose, that it was rigged, that it was a scam, and keep up that premise for his followers. I think that's the game plan. He wants to have it both ways. Obviously, if he wins, it will be legitimate. And if he loses, he'll be able to go on for the rest of time saying that it wasn't.
1: And as you say, if the uh, the states aren't uh, particularly well experienced at handling large volumes of mail-in votes, and there's a lot of voting going on before polling day, it strikes me that with multiple systems and all of that new complexity, and we've seen the way Governments respond to complexity through this COVID crisis and nothing's absolutely faultless. It seems to me there's real potential there for things to go wrong, even with the best will in the world, and that will be grist to that mill of his. Mm. We saw in Australia, for for example, you remember this, Matthew... when there were the problems with the WA missing ballot papers a few years ago, a few elections ago, it takes very little indeed to shake public confidence in uh, the fair administration of an election. Uh, the Australian Electoral Commission, for example, has been uh, really very, very professional for many years and yet Immediately that happened, uh, there was speculation about its professionalism and mm. and uh, the, the the propensity for corruption to creep in and and that sort of thing. This is a turbocharged oh. version of that.
0: Completely. When you describe, I've described the AEC to people here, and they just cannot believe that you could have an organisation like that that isn't politically tainted. You know, and that no one ordinary person knows who's running the AEC it just happens invisibly which is a sign of how much confidence and trust people have in it well here it's politicians elected officials themselves in each state running the system so you couldn't get a bigger conflict of interest than that so the moment that something goes wrong or the moment that it's even close uh, you've got a, a lack of trust and so much motivation for the losing side to cast doubt on the results and the thing is if the result is coming in later because of these mail-in ballots that creates more time for people to uh, complain and launch legal action you know people are really getting prepared here for the possibility that there may not be a result on election night which
1: so those mail-in votes will be counted after polling day or, or on polling day and continuing thereafter, but potentially in different states and uh, using possibly different methodologies for it counting takes them.
0: Longer. It takes longer. Yeah, The thing is, places like California that use it, it takes weeks for their ballots to be counted. It doesn't usually get much attention because it's a safe democratic state and the result is already known. But if that's happening more across the country... Uh, and if there's a big difference Republicans are saying they want to vote in person and Democrats are saying they want to vote in mail so vote by mail so if you get the uh the in person votes first it could look like Trump is winning when perhaps he's not when the other votes are coming in slower it's i think there's real potential for a complete complete disaster the thing that would stop that would be if it really is a landslide for one side or the other
1: Yes, and that uh, that doesn't seem absolutely impossible from here. How do you, how, how, by how much is uh, Joe Biden, the Democratic uh, presumptive nominee, uh, by how much is he leading Trump now in, in most of the polls that you're reading?
0: He's leading by about 7 or 8%. It's been, in terms of the averages, it's been a bumping around a little bit. If anything, the big lead may be moderating a little bit. And that's what people would expect. I think everyone's expecting it to get at least a little bit closer to election day as Republicans come back to the party and and stick with Trump. He's doing well in most of the key battleground states. But the thing is, it wouldn't take much of a tightening for Democrats to start getting nervous both because of the way it went in 2016, some doubts still about how accurate the polls are, and just this issue of the Electoral College, the fact that no one really expects Trump to win the most votes uh, on the national level, but could he somehow squeak out a very narrow victory again or even more narrow than last time in some of these states? So if the polls are coming into... 3% 3% or so in these states, the narrative's going to shift pretty quickly.
1: And that may be to the Democrats' advantage. Uh, one of the problems that uh, you, you have, particularly in a system where you have voluntary voting, uh, you have a problem when it looks like the result is preordained, that uh, mm. it's inevitable and sometimes your own supporters don't come out and vote for you because... They figure you're going to win anyway and they don't need to. It's it's almost in the Democrats' interest to at least have this thing remain close, particularly if they have the analysis that – and the evidence seems to point to this – that if everyone voted, the Democrats would win at the moment. That that I mean I, I'll be interested in your, your response to this, but my theory uh, for some time has been – and my assessment for some time has been that Trump hasn't particularly broadened his base uh, since being president – Uh, He may have made them more passionate in some cases, but uh, he hasn't particularly broadened it, whereas he has been very successful at energising his opponent's base. Uh, What do you think of that assessment?
0: Yeah, absolutely, and he hasn't tried to. He hasn't attempted to expand that base in the way a president usually would. When you have the power of the office, you tend to speak more Across the whole nation, rather than just uh, rather than just gearing a message towards your own supporters, and since day one, it's been noticeable that he hasn't done that. Just the amount of time that's spent talking about the base is really is really unusual. There would usually be much more attention on uh, independent voters, swing voters, you know, people who aren't committed to one party or the other. He's gone. De- gone completely deep on this strategy of maximising his base, which could work. Uh, it, it creates a very narrow path, though, because you need to get so many of them out to vote and you've got to have worries about those people in the middle, uh, suburban voters, college-educated uh, white people, even who would be traditional Republicans and may have voted for him last time. They're not the people that he's appealing to with, with some of his messages. So that's the really risky thing about his strategy.
1: Now it seems to me that he's been attempting a kind of uh, rhetorical pivot over time. I mean uh, he was very successful with branding uh, Hillary Clinton crooked Hillary in two thousand and sixteen when I say very successful, I mean it energized his base as we've just been we've just been talking about He still didn't get as many votes as Hillary Clinton, but he got the uh, electoral college votes that he needed. He's been trying the same thing for months now with Joe Biden, referring to him as sleepy Joe Biden, which is um, presumably a a reference to Biden's lower profile, the fact that he's uh, seen as uh, perhaps their own polling shows this up, that he's not seen as as energetic, um, as um, uh, sort of vibrant and present as as Trump is, as the president is. Um, It's trying to play on the idea that Joe Biden is too old to be seeking the office there's been a bit of a pivot in this, even in recent times, though, as I understand it, where now the, the the Republicans are starting to, and Trump, the Trump administration, are starting to, they're dropping that and and moving to a new strategy of of uh, talking about the people Joe Biden is surrounded by. That if you're electing Joe Biden, you're actually electing. A radical left cabal that uh, Biden is some sort of Trojan horse uh, for for the for the left wing radicals that have been on the streets in American cities and and that uh, you know are parading cancel culture and all these other extremes. Is that your reading of it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And what it paints what it, what it points to is the strangely tough task they're having with Joe Biden, who in some ways uh, is is an unimpressive candidate in some ways. I mean, when I saw him in Iowa at the start of this year at at the Iowa caucuses and whatnot, his speeches were terrible, you know, just so flat, uh, almost no one there. He wasn't generating any excitement. And that was the time where it looked like he wasn't going to win the nomination because Democrats uh, thought he was a figure from the past. You know, he's not a very exciting uh, campaigner right now. There's little enthusiasm about him in the way you would expect like Washington DC where I live is is a very very democratic city um so is New York where I've been a bit I haven't seen one single Joe Biden sign in anybody's house or you know any any there's no sign that anyone's excited about him but for people he's a comforting Figure and he's not a scary figure who's easy to caricature like Bernie Sanders would have been, and and that what you're getting at there with this puppet of the left is Donald Trump's dream was to run on a the strength of the economy that he was going to say he delivered, Well, that's been uh, destroyed right now by the coronavirus, and two he was hoping to run against Bernie Sanders. Who is a self declared a socialist, you know, and, and painted as a as a socialist takeover of America. So he's trying to do that with Joe Biden, but it's not working so far because that is just not the image most people have of Joe Biden. He's a very well known figure from his years in the Senate and then as Obama's VP. So he's been hard for them to attack. They've tried all different types of things. They're trying to say he's a puppet of China and that he's soft on China. They're saying very explicit things that he has dementia and Alzheimer's, which there isn't evidence for. Um, But sometimes with Trump, his heart doesn't even seem to be in it. He'll say things like, oh, well, Biden is an extreme but some of the people around him are extreme. You know, Trump doesn't seem to have it in him to attack him in the same way that he did with Hillary Clinton. So that's the thing about Biden. In one way, he's a very formidable candidate, and in another way, he's not a very impressive one, and and they're finding that hard to deal with.
1: Yes, one wonders whether that's just what the American voters want, though, is just a return to orthodoxy, a return to some sort of normality and and predictability, even if it isn't very exciting.
0: Uh, But as you say... Yeah, Yeah, that's what his team would say in defence. You know, Trump's team will point to things like Biden's YouTube rallies, virtual rallies that he's hosting during this pandemic are only getting a few thousand views, and isn't that terrible? Look how many more Trumps get well, and what Biden supporters would say, well, most people don't want to tune in or need to tune in because they have faith that he's going to be competent and uh, normal and saying the things you'd expect a president to say so they can tune out and think about something else. And that's a comforting thought for people right now when there's so much uncertainty in the world.
1: And what about Biden's running mate? Because a lot of this uh, is, is is connected, a lot of this framing of Biden is Connected with this issue of uh, who his running mate will be as as a potential you know, VP, uh, should he win, um, who who is that going to be, and is that does that play into that narrative that Trump's trying to establish that in fact Biden is merely a you know a stalking horse that he's he's only going to be there. He may not even see out the first term, let alone serve two terms.
0: Yeah, I think the Trump team would be loving him to pick someone controversial or someone quite out there as his VP. For example, uh, Elizabeth Warren, who ran against Biden in the nomination process. Uh, She is someone who for Trump and the people of Fox News is just a figure they could really attack as this Harvard uh, professor with all these ideas about reshaping America. She's someone who gets under the skin of conservatives and excites and excites them to come out and vote. So the feeling is that Biden isn't going to do that, that he's going to try to avoid being too risky here. He's, there's a lot of conditions going around this choice. He said in March, I think, you know, he said, I'm going to nominate a woman as as my choice. So that knocked out a lot of people and narrowed the field quite a lot. And then with the Black Lives Matter movement and the process a lot of momentum has built around the idea that he should pick uh, not just a non-white woman but that he should pick a black woman to try and harness the energy of uh, this discussion around racial justice and to fire up a uh, black voters. so that that narrows the field even further so the the lead so
1: who are the who are the possibilities here Kamala Harris is Kamala one Kamala
0: Harris is is the main one and it's one of those things where there's a feeling of inevitability around her, which is strange in some ways because she actually had the most contentious moments with Biden on the debate stage. She went after him very, very obviously. People are debating; it's normal to to attack each other in some way, but she went after him in a quite personal way, really, around uh, school integration, you know, between uh, black and white school children. Uh, And then she dropped out of the race very early before Iowa because her campaign was going terribly and she wasn't attracting any support, including from black voters who were going for Joe Biden. Uh, She's from California, which is already a safe state, so she's not necessarily going to bring any votes for a particular region. So that would be an interesting thing about her if if she's nominated. Yeah, it's it's unclear exactly what Biden's trying to do, or if or if he's just going to try and pick the the woman that he'd get a, along with best. The fact it's taking a bit longer than we'd expected is suggesting that he's finding it hard to land on the perfect person who's ticking the right boxes of someone he likes and gets along with, but someone who's going to not upset his election chances or, or do him some good at the election. There's no perfect candidate out there.
1: Yes, I read somewhere that uh, one of the things that might be holding it up is just the assessment that uh, Biden and his strategists are making that uh, things are going so well for him with the low profile and essentially not having any major announcements that uh, why upset that, why not just let that run for a bit longer before changing the dynamic as you would by introducing uh, a VP, a VP candidate, particularly if it's uh, you know someone who's controversial in their own right, so that'll be interesting to see. What um, just before we go, Matthew, what should we look for now in terms of the next big uh, sort of signposts towards the election? I guess that might be the acceptance of nominations on both sides, which, as I understand it, are likely to both be done remotely.
0: Yeah, which is just a sign of how much the pandemic is reshaping. This whole election, the conventions would be such a big, glitzy event packed with so many people. Uh, Biden's going to be doing it from his home in Delaware, accepting the nomination. And Trump is trying to figure out where he can give his. He's talking about the White House, would, which would be very, uh, very unconventional to use the White House for such a party political event. That's a big moment uh, in, in the process The debate's already generating a lot of discussion. Some of Joe Biden's uh, supporters are saying that he shouldn't debate Trump because he's just going to be met with a blizzard of uh, lies and inaccurate statements. I I think there will be debates, but they're going to be watched closely as well because Trump is putting quite a bit of... stock on using that as a chance to show that you know Biden isn't as mentally agile as he used to be so they're going to get a lot of attention uh, this time around as well and I think yeah just to keep an eye particularly this year on I'm going to be keeping an eye on the mechanics of voting you know how people are voting uh you know is the vote being suppressed in any way uh Yeah, that just the the mechanics of the system and and whether people are participating is something to really watch because it's never been done before to vote in a situation like this.
1: Well, Matthew, I'm very glad that we have you over there and we can read your uh, coverage of US politics in the nine newspapers, particularly uh, anyone who can survive a, a five-storey plunge onto the footpath or onto the concrete uh, I think is tough enough to handle what the American political system is going to dish up and we'll be watching it with great interest. Thanks so much for joining us uh, today on Democracy Sausage.
0: Thanks a lot, Mark. It was a pleasure.
1: Look forward to talking to you again at a later date. And that's your lot this week for Democracy Sausage Extra. Uh, We'll be with you early next week with another Democracy Sausage. Until then, bye for now.